0: This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Wheat planting is just around the corner and most farmers have their seed purchased and are getting their drills ready. Here are some tips for planting wheat from K-State wheat specialist Romulo Galato. First and foremost, and one I consider of great importance, is to slow down and ensure the planter is planting evenly and at the proper depth. Most drills plant best at around 5 to 6 miles per hour. I've seen some air drills able to plant ok at slightly higher speeds, but none do a better job going faster. Drills have a tendency to pull up in the soil at higher speeds. A good amount of down pressure can help, but this won't fix all the issues. At times that I've seen problems with shallow seed depths and drill jumps tend to be much worse in no-till fields in corn stubble. The stubble and firmness of the soil makes the seedbed uneven. The ideal wheat seed depth is usually one and a half inches. When planting into warmer soils, it is important not to plant too deeply as the coleoptile, the little bit of stem between the seed and the soil surface, will be shorter than usual. This can cause the wheat not to make it out of the soil surface. Seeds that are too shallow, sometimes even germinating on the soil surface, will be at risk for winter damage or late freezes. This wheat can often look fine going into the winter and even into early spring. will then start to slow down and turn yellow. This is because the plant cells in the crown were damaged, so sugars aren't getting to the roots and nutrients aren't getting to the leaves. Of course, another planting tip is something we always talk about, not planting too early. One problem with planting early is getting past the Hessian fly point, but that's less of a problem in this area. Mostly it's because big bushy wheat tends to have worse problems during winter and greening up during the spring. Wheat can be planted early for cattle grazing, as the cattle keep the wheat short. Wheat planted for cattle grazing needs to have seeding rates increased and slightly more nitrogen. Soil fertility is important, for wheat has a lot to do before preparing for winter. Poor fertility can slow it down, reducing tillering. Nitrogen rates of around 20 to 30 pounds in the acre in the fall. Fields planted no-till, or into stubble that have been rough-tilled, might need an extra 10 to 20 pounds of nitrogen to compensate for the high-carbon corn stubble. Fields with low phosphorus levels can be iron furrow or side-fertilized with starred fertilizer. This will help with early growth in low-testing soils, generally in fields below 15 parts-per-million phosphorus. pH in the field is also important, and in this area, the surface soil needs to be above 6.0 for most crops. Seed treatments can be important as well to reduce fungal issues like smut or protect against the fall wheat insects like aphids and mites. Ben-run wheat is more likely to carry some of the fungal diseases from generation to generation, so treating seed or starting fresh with purchased seed is needed from time to time. If you have any questions about wheat planting, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. The simplest form of record gathering is headcounts to keep accurate inventories. The next level is whole herd data, percent pregnant, percent calf crop, or weaning weights. This is adequate to get a picture of overall herd performance. The next level involves individual animal performance records, providing information to identify problems and make management decisions. Whole herd performance can be assessed with a few calculations. After breeding the females, conduct pregnancy checks and record the number of bred in open non-pregnant, animals, finding the pregnancy percentage by dividing the number of bred females by the total number exposed. This pregnancy percentage is the first indication of herd reproductive efficiency. After calving season, count the calves born and calculate the calving percentage by dividing the number of calves born by the number of females exposed during breeding season. The calving percentage shows calf death loss due to calving difficulty, miscarriage, and the like. Once calves are weaned, find a weaning percentage by dividing the total number of calves weaned by the number of females exposed. The weaning percentage is an assessment of calf death loss between calving and weaning. I could go on with various metrics to measure herd performance, but I'd like to get into the details of individual performance. Knowing which animals have bred, calved, and weaned a calf, you can get an idea of which females are earning their keep and which are freeloading. If a female has been exposed for breeding, but hasn't successfully weaned her offspring, then she should be on the cull list. Noting which females are calving early in the season will impact replacement heifer decisions. The success or failure of ranch record keeping is determined by the individual responsible for the task. It's important to identify someone in the operation that's organized, enjoys data management, and has time to devote to managing records. Handwritten records, which more than half cow operations use, might be the simplest method of collecting information in the pasture or shoot side. Handwritten records range from blank, spiral notebooks to specifically designed, pocket-sized book to organize multiple metrics. Options for electronic record-keeping systems include commercial software or spreadsheets like Microsoft Excel for custom databases. Electronic systems easily maintain animal production history and calculate statistics to thoroughly analyze performance. There's not a one-size-fits-all answer to keeping records. Handwritten records are difficult to analyze, and spreadsheets require skill to develop and maintain, while a commercial software program can be an added expense. Choosing a system that the record keeper will actually use is the best option. Perhaps a combination could work effectively, writing calving dates in a notebook, and then transferring that information to a program to be analyzed electronically. To learn more about livestock record management, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337.
0: Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's Davin Strons, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report.
2: This is Davin Strons, one of the Ag and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District with your K-State Research and Extension report. When evaluating a pond and deciding if it should be cleaned out, Or a new pond should be constructed somewhere else, keep in mind normally the best pond site was taken by the initial pond. However, if a suitable site is available, it is usually less expensive to construct a new pond than it is to clean out sediment from an existing one. Thus, a new pond should be fully considered before deciding to clean one out. When pricing out the cost of a new pond, it is recommended to include fencing around the pond and providing a remote watering site for cattle into the cost of building a new pond. When cleaning out a pond, it is important to have a place to take the sludge from cleaning this pond. Often this sludge has the consistency of pancake batter. It just keeps sliding downhill. It may require a period of time to dewater and dry out before the material can be used. Placing the sediment on the back side of the pond dam is the best place to put it. This sediment could also be used to fill some low spots in driveways, small gullies, or ruts in the driveway and around the pasture. Putting it right next to or upslope of the pond is not a good spot, however, because it could wash right back into the pond. Pond sludge will not have any soil structure, so it will have very little strength. It is probably not a good ideal to use pond sludge under a supporting wall of a building, but it might have some value for amending a degraded soil. If a pond was leaking, soda ash or rock salt can be used for sealing lagoons or ponds. These work by causing clay particles to swell and repel each other, thus destroying the soil structure. It is recommended that they be incorporated and compacted in six inch layers during the construction of the pond. It should be noted that adding these to an existing pond may not work. It will likely be necessary to drain the pond, clean out the sediment, and add the sealant and then compact the pond. Bentonite clay is a special type of clay that swells when water is added to it, so it can also be used to line a pond. However, using bentonite is an expensive option. When bentonite dries out, it will crack and so it is not recommended for use in a pond where the water level fluctuates greatly. If bentonite is used, it should be added during the construction process and be mixed and compacted with the rest of the soil being used to construct the pond. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been Davin Srantz with your K-State Research and Extension Report.
0: Thank you, Davin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With
3: K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Plants need a specific pH range to grow successfully and not suffer from micronutrient deficiencies, but oftentimes our soil shoots over the upper limit of that range. When that happens, you need to acidify the soil, which can be accomplished through several methods pH is the ratio between positively charged hydrogen ions and negatively charged hydroxide ions. When the pH is above 7.0, there are more hydroxide ions in the soil than hydrogen ions. With any acidification method, the goal is to remove the negatively charged hydroxide ions from the soil through the addition of positively charged ions that will bond with the hydroxide. The most common, and one that is going to have the quickest effect, is the application of elemental sulfur, which is transformed by soil bacteria into sulfuric acid. The sulfuric acid then neutralizes the hydroxide, bringing the soil pH down. Most plants are going to need a pH between 6.0 and 7.0, but our soil runs about an average pH of 7.5 without previous adjustment. If your soil has a lot of clay, the pH is going to be harder to change. Clay particles have a negative charge on their surface, which means that any positively charged ions will bind to the clay, instead of to the hydroxide like you want. When this happens with hydrogen ions, these ions stop balancing with hydroxide ions, and the pH rises. Clay soils will need about double the application of elemental sulfur compared to a loam soil to achieve the same pH change. There are a couple of other options to achieve soil acidification, but neither is as effective nor as fast as elemental sulfur. The first is to fertilize with an ammonium-based fertilizer like DH or DAP. Ammonium carries a positive charge, so when it encounters the hydroxide ion in the soil, it lends a hydrogen atom to the hydroxide to form water and ammonia. Both of these molecules have no charge. Ammonia is then converted to nitrate by soil organisms, which the plant will then be able to take up. This works if you need small pH adjustments, but quickly becomes cost prohibitive at production scale. The other way to adjust pH is to amend the soil with an organic matter source like peat moss or pine needles. This method will have other benefits outside of soil chemistry, but is also the slowest method for lowering the pH. Keeping the soil watered consistently will help speed up the breakdown of this organic matter. While most plants prefer a soil pH between 6.0 and 7.0, there are always exceptions to the rule. Blueberries are one example of a plant that needs a much lower soil pH than what you can find naturally, between 4.0 and 5.5. Other plants that require acidic soil are potatoes, azaleas, and rhododendrons. Most plants will be flexible with the soil pH, so if you have a pH of 7.2 or 7.3, you can often work around that. However, it is always important to know what you're working with before trying to make any changes. A soil test will tell you the pH of your soil along with its nutrient levels so you don't end up adding anything that you don't need to. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report.
0: Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.